0: This Janet Meffer Today archived broadcast is brought to you by Heart for Lebanon. We're trying to provide 100 refugee families with emergency supplies and the gospel during this urgent time of crisis. Your gift of $116 will help two families. Please help today by calling 888-247-5499. That's 888-247-5499. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMeffer.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone.
1: Are we going to stand with God? Come what may. That the word of God says it, I believe it.
0: That's the way it is. And now, here is
2: Janet Mefford.
0: Welcome everybody. Great to have you with us. I want to talk a little bit about freedom. Freedom versus socialism. Freedom versus communism. This is a theme I'm going to come back to in the coming days. But I'm going to touch on it briefly today. President Trump was on Fox and Friends yesterday and he talked a little bit about this issue of socialism again. The president, of course, in the past has talked about America never becoming a socialist country. That was from his famous 2019 State of the Union address. He has restated that idea multiple times, warning the American people of what is to come if these radicals and the Democrat Party continue their trajectory and actually take more seats during the election. This is a big concern of his. And I think this is a big concern of millions of people across this country. We live in a free nation and we may take that for granted now and then, but we certainly cannot continue to take it for granted. One of the things that has come out is how diabolical Joe Biden's tax plan is. It's really out there. It's really, really out there. And Fox and friends were asking the president during this interview about Joe Biden's tax plan versus Trump's tax plan. This is what he said. Cut one.
1: Well, it's much more than what he's talking about. And I mean, he's what he said is much worse than that. He's going to look at the Wall Street Journal. They just came out today just in terms of of life. Sixty five hundred dollars over a short period of time. More they're going to have to pay. He my tax plan was the biggest tax cut in the history of our country and regulation cut but the biggest tax cut in the history of our country he wants to violate that that would take away child tax credit a thousand dollars a child it would take away two thousand five hundred dollars it would take away you know something that will happen if they ever did it energy energy look at you you're buying two dollar a gallon gasoline then nobody thought that was possible that will go to five dollars ten dollars you won't even be able to buy a car you'll go into a depression the likes of which this country has never seen, at least since 1929. Who knows? That was a pretty bad one, in all fairness. But if he gets in, what they will do is everything, it'll be a disaster. They're going to double, triple, quadruple your taxes. They actually say we're going to quadruple. To spend it on the Green New Deal, this ridiculous Green New Deal, which makes no sense, designed by AOC plus three, that had nothing to do. Didn't even study the environment. Now they're telling us, right. you know, about the Green New Deal. No, no. What they're doing is crazy, and their taxes will quadruple. They're going to take your guns away. The whole thing is crazy. The whole well, plan is crazy. They this do. Is the only candidate I've ever seen that runs on the basis that they're going to raise your taxes.
0: That is pretty disconcerting to think about the redistribution of wealth, and that's exactly what it is. As we have talked on this show a lot before. We have outlined all of the Marxist roots of the Green New Deal, how the globalists and the technocrats want the Green New Deal. It's a way to redistribute wealth. It's a way to impose Marxism. It's a way to put the government in the driver's seat rather than the people. And that is antithetical to our founding. That is antithetical to our founding documents and our way of life and everything that we believe and hold to as Americans and as Christians This is anti-freedom. In fact, the Daily Mail revealed that Biden's tax plan will lead to a combined rate of up to 62% for those making more than $400,000 in states, including California and New York. This would be the highest tax increase in three decades. Does that sound like a good idea? You want more money taken away? Why are they doing this? Is it because they just don't think it's moral for you to have your own money? It's a good question. Maybe if Biden came out of the basement, somebody could answer that, get him to answer that question. But he's too busy trying to dodge questions about Hunter. So I don't think we're going to see him till the next debate. Let me also play for you something else the president said on Fox and Friends, because one of the things that came up was this Green New Deal and the fact that under the actual Green New Deal, the resolution that was put forward by Markey and uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, this was the Green New Deal upon which Biden's plan is based, but it's got all the same terrible elements basically that the Green New Deal has. Listen to what Trump said about it. This is cut two.
1: So they want to take a building and they want to make the windows from nice windows to little windows. Oh, that's just fine. That was my business. I know all about construction. That's wonderful. Let's take your windows out and make them tiny little windows because you're going to save two cents on energy. These people. This is the most important election in the history of our country, and people have to get out and vote because what they want to do is crazy. We will never allow this country to become a socialist nation, and that's what they're trying to do.
0: It's really sobering. That's very sobering, but Americans need to hear that. They need to hear that. People need to understand what the policies are of this radical party that would impose not only these horrible elements of the Green New Deal, but so many other things, including the LGBTQ plus agenda on steroids, many, many other things that we've talked about on the show. I wanted, though, to give you another example of this from another corner of the radical left. And I'm talking about Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer. This woman, I don't know, there, there are some nutty leftist women out there. She's one of the worst. In my own opinion, she is one of the worst. I want to play for you an excerpt of what she had to say with Chuck Todd over at Meet the Press on Sunday. Didn't get to this yesterday, but listen to what she has to say here and to what they talked about. This is Chuck Todd. Listen to cut three.
2: How do you um, how are you going to account for um, lockdown
3: fatigue, mitigation fatigue? I mean, that is real. We know this is real um, in your efforts this time to convince Your constituents to abide
2: by the rules?
4: Yeah, so last night the president talked about lockdowns. We haven't had a stay home order since late spring, but I know that he never lets the facts get in the way of comments that he's making. Every moment that we are not focused on the fact that there are 220,000 Americans who have died from this virus is good for him. So in that sense, as he incites additional violence against people who are just trying to save one another's lives, it's good for him. And that's why I don't wanna talk about him endangering public servants' lives. I wanna talk about what he hasn't done, and that's his job. The Trump virus response is the worst in the globe. I mean, in the world, it's the worst. Eight million people have been uh, have contracted COVID nineteen. Two hundred twenty thousand dead. We've got people in food pantry lines who never would have imagined that they'd be there, and no. Uh, light on the horizon because our numbers keep going up this is a gravely serious moment for all of us and if you're tired Mm -hmm. of lockdowns or you're tired of wearing masks or you wish you were in church this morning or watching college football or your kids were in person instruction it is time for change in this country and that's why we've got to elect joe biden
0: this is one of the most dishonest rants i've heard yet The food pantry lines are Trump's fault. No, the food pantry lines came about because so many people suffered during the lockdowns and lost their businesses and lost their jobs thanks to the tyrannical policies of people like Governor Gretchen Whitmer. And I'm going to get to her in just a second regarding her own strategy against COVID-19 in Michigan. But did you hear her say, if you wish you were in church this morning, you got to vote for Biden? If you wish you were in church. Right, because we're supposed to believe that the left is the the side of the political aisle that's all about opening churches. The The people who've been sued, right and left, have been leftist tyrants. So she's trying to leave this impression that the left will make sure that you are free. The moment Joe Biden becomes president, it will just be an avalanche of freedom for Christians. Who does she think she's kidding? And by the way, she's the same woman who put 8645 in the background during that television interview that you just heard the excerpt from, Meet the Press. 8645, let's see, 86 is a slang for killing somebody. 45 happens to be the number that describes Trump's line, uh, you know, in the lineup for presidencies. He's the 45th president of the United States. And what was that all about? Was that some kind of subliminal message? Very, very disturbing, not to mention the fact that the reason that Whitmer's extension of emergency declarations used to mandate lockdowns on the people of Michigan, the reason that happened was because a court stopped her and then she sued again. And she was using illegal means for instituting those emergency orders. This woman is nuts Sorry, but she is. She's nuts. And she stands up in front of a president, an entire national audience and tries to misrepresent the truth. It's just shameful. We're going to talk next with David Cortman from Alliance Defending Freedom about the fight of an Oregon Christian school against some of this tyranny. Stay with us. We'll be back on Janet for today. Hi, this is Janet Mefford for Preborn. Candace talks about finding out she was pregnant. Thankfully, an ultrasound provided by Preborn allowed her to hear her baby's heartbeat.
4: The sonogram sealed the deal for me. My baby was like this tiny little spectrum of hope. And I saw his heart beating on the screen. And knowing that there's life growing inside, I mean, that sonogram changed my life. I went from just Candace to mom Thank you to everybody that has given these gifts. You guys are giving more than money. You guys are giving love. Preborn has 10
0: centers that do not have ultrasound machines. Would you make a leadership gift and sponsor a machine today? These life-saving machines cost more than most centers can afford. Your tax-deductible gift of $15,000 will place a machine in a needy women's center and save countless lives for years to come. To donate, call 855-402-BABY. 855-402-BABY. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. For several years now, Syrians have been pouring into the country of Lebanon to seek refuge amid terrorism and civil war. Now the crisis in Lebanon has escalated in the aftermath of COVID-19, a crumbling economy, and a devastating explosion in Beirut. Yet the spiritual crisis in Lebanon is the most devastating crisis of all because many people there have still never heard anything about Jesus. That's why Heart for Lebanon is on the ground ministering to hurting refugee families in the South and the Bekaa Valley in Lebanon, providing emergency supplies, Christian education, Bible studies, and worship gatherings for these refugee families. And the impact is incredible. Your investment of $116 will help two families impacted by the crisis in Lebanon to get emergency supplies that they need to survive during the next 60 days. But best of all, these families will hear the gospel of Jesus for the very first time. A gift of $58 is enough to help one family. Can you help? Call now, 888- eight two four seven fifty four ninety nine
3: you're listening to janet mefford today and now here's janet
0: Welcome back. We have heard a lot of stories of governmental overreach against Christian churches during the pandemic, but what about Christian schools? In the state of Oregon, Governor Catherine Brown issued an executive order threatening private school administrators with 30 days of jail time and fines of more than $1,200 for reopening in-person instruction. This despite the fact that public schools of identical size in the same county can resume in-person classes without that penalty. Now Alliance Defending Freedom has filed a federal Lawsuit on behalf of Hermiston Christian School. And we're going to get the details now from the lead attorney on the case, David Cortman, who is senior counsel and vice president of U.S. litigation with Alliance Defending Freedom. David, great to have you with us. How are you?
3: I'm doing great. How are you?
0: Good. What is going on in Oregon? This is crazy. As I understand it, this Christian school was first told they could go ahead and open up. They spent all this money to get ready. Then they were told, oh, sorry, you can't open up, but the public schools of a similar size can. What, What happened here?
3: Yeah, it's really remarkable because each day we hear new stories of how um, local governments and state governments are completely overreaching, violating the Constitution. And this is just another example. We have, as you mentioned, all summer long private schools were told you all can open up back on the fall. Uh, Department of Education has no jurisdiction over you, so just make sure you're safe. You know, work with your local health departments. That's all fine. They spend all this money. They rehire the teachers. And then all of a sudden, an about face happens at the beginning of August, and they say, the state says, you could no longer open any longer. You've got to do completely online learning. But by the way, if there is public schools that are small, 75 or less, we're going to give them an exception to the rule and and let them open. And even though private schools of the same size still have to be closed. So it's, it's clearly unequal treatment.
0: Good grief. Well, now, as I understand it, they were opening up as an emergency child care facility. What was that all about?
3: Right. So, you know, another problem with, with executive order is is not only can colleges and universities open, but also you can have child care centers that are open. So if you open as a child care center, you're allowed to open. But if you open as a private school, you're not allowed to open. Same kids, same place, same things going on. Not sure how COVID distinguishes between the two, <laughs> uh, but one you are allowed and one you're not. And it's just clearly unconstitutional.
0: Well, I'm sure the question for a lot of people is why in the world did Oregon say go ahead and open, get ready, pay all this money? get your teachers in place and then turn around and do that about face. What was the reason? Was it spiking in cases, spiking in deaths of COVID-19 deaths? What happened?
3: No, and we, we know it's not that because the COVID doesn't know whether you are at a public school or a private school. <laughs> right. So if you're in the same county and you can go to a public school but not a private school, it's not about COVID. What's interesting, one thing we did learn going through the process was on a phone call with local leadership, a liaison for the governor said, look, she was asked a specific question. Why are public schools allowed to open, and not private schools? And she basically said, well, we don't want a mass exodus from public schools going to private schools. Oh. Well, that's a political reason. That's not a legitimate reason. And to violate the Constitution
0: no and why in the world should she play favorites what's in it for her
3: well exactly right and then the problem is is that well we, we know the public school unions and 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 all those that are you know behind a lot of political stuff But clearly, when you're in that position, you've got to say, look, what does the law require me to do? What does fairness require me to do? And when you're telling all of your citizens and students that are in private schools, look, we don't really look out for you. We just want to make sure we get other kids back in schools, but not you. I think that sends a pretty loud message.
0: Well, it does. So what has the effect been on Hermiston Christian School? What kinds of implications have there been for them in light of what this governor did?
3: Yeah, I mean it's been really tough um financially speaking because all of a sudden now you have all this money going out preparing Right, all these all different requirements to make sure you're ready for this, the rehiring of things and now you can't have students, students are saying look, if we can't go back to school, we may have to move, because they're, they're close to the border of Washington, we may have to go to a different state, and so we're actually filing a motion with the court to allow the school to reopen uh, because the, the consequences are devastating, and keep in mind when the public schools get shut they still get their government funding mm-hmm. when a private school gets shut, the money completely dries up, so right. it's, we're not talking about the same things.
0: Right, well when 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 they were making the decision on what to do after this was all put into place, did they appeal to the government directly? Did they go to the governor and say, hey, can you give us an exception as well?
3: Yeah, what's interesting is the, the, the initial change where they were allowing certain schools to open, and then this this, this, this small school exception, we call it, it's, it's the religious school closure, where they said, hey, small schools can open if you're 75 or less. And then one iteration of it, without anyone saying anything, the state took out the private schools and only had it relate to, to, to public schools, so they did it under cloak. Uh, of darkness and no one knew it happened. And so then when they started to find out that they weren't allowed to open, they went to the state, they went to the local county and still they were rebuffed each time.
0: Good grief. So tell us a little bit about this suit that you just filed, what you're seeking, what your arguments are as far as the religious freedom and also the just the constitutional rights of this school to be able to be treated like the public schools were treated
3: yeah I mean the first, the first argument is, is is a violation of the free exercise clause, basically that it violates our free exercise rights for you to say that and, and, and the courts have said this for for months now you can 't the, the way you look at it is how many people are meeting in a particular place at a particular time for length of period, and that 's how you compare so for you to say, well, you can go to a public school and not a private school violates that right on the face, and the fact that you 're targeting all of the private schools. In this particular county where a client is every private school is religious so the only thing you're targeting is religious schools and so that violates the free exercise clause and so the argument is is you need to let them open immediately because this is this is a right you can't fix with money right if you're educating students even if there is some cost involved the real question is is we have to get these students educated we have to get them back uh, in their classrooms
0: well right and it would seem to me when you're talking about a school of this very small size it would be that much more difficult for them to do do things like online education. They, they probably don't have the resources or the money that the public schools do to be able to accommodate virtual learning.
3: Well, they don't. And not only that, they have students and parents who parents work And their low income can't afford to take off and be home with their kids while they're doing online learning. And, of course, at the younger ages, you have to have parental supervision. And so not only is it financially problematic for the school, uh, it is for both the parents and the students. So it makes it twice as difficult for them.
4: Right.
0: Well, so now every Christian school, every small private school in this particular county is being targeted. How many schools are we talking about in that particular county that are undergoing this kind of tyranny, as it were?
3: Yeah, in, in this county, uh, I think there's somewhere around seven or eight private schools. Uh, but throughout the state, you know, obviously there are, there are dozens and dozens of private schools. And this rule goes completely statewide. Um, you know, we've got our client, Hermiston Christian Center, um, who has their own school, who's willing to take a stand on behalf of everyone and say, look, this isn't fair. This isn't right. You know, you can't be opening small public schools across the states but not allow the, pro- the small private schools open up. And so they've taken the stand, and, and, and we're we'll looking forward to going to court on that.
0: Well, that's good. What is the timeline at this juncture for the suit?
3: So we just filed a suit a couple of days ago. We're actually preparing what's called a preliminary injunction. And that accelerates the case and says to the court, while we're litigating the case, we want a ruling for you saying that the private schools are allowed to open in the meantime while we go further and do everything else that needs to be done. So it asks the court for a quick ruling uh, on that issue.
0: Good, because those kids need to get back into school. You know, it's so interesting looking at this more broadly, because I know ADF has been involved in other cases of this sort it's interesting how the pandemic has seemed to bring out the worst in certain governmental officials. And we have seen a lot of these stories of Christian schools and Christian churches being treated with different standards than other entities. What do you make of this from a legal perspective?
3: Yeah, really problematic. And, and, you know, what's interesting is it's different in every state as to why, but it all ends up being the same problem. So, for example, uh, we have a case in Nevada where they've decided that the casinos are more important because they bring in a lot more money than the churches are. So you can go to a casino uh, with thousands of people, but you can't go to a church with, you know, a hundred or two people. And, and I think the problem is it's the priority. Each state, and this is the other problem, each state has, 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 it's, it's government overreach where one executive officer, the governor, whoever it happens to be, says, now I decide who's essential, who's not, who gets to open, who doesn't, who gets to make a living, who doesn't. And they, you know, they always say it's based on science. It's not based on science because science doesn't know, nor does the coronavirus know if you're at a public school or at a private school or if you're at a casino or at a church. The whole point is, is are you gathering close together for how long? And seeing that throughout the country, you can tell the priorities lie. And the problem is, is is, is faith and people of faith are, are down low on that priority line. And that's, I think that's the wrong approach, obviously.
0: Well, and it seems there are a lot of legal things that need to be addressed when this thing is finally over and we're praying there will be an end to all of this at some point. It feels endless. But when you look at what's going on with these emergency health orders and these executive orders, somebody like me, who's not an attorney, just stands back and asks the question, how long do you get to declare something an emergency? I mean, we're now looking at March. That was a long time ago. Why don't the you know the legislatures get involved and deal with some of these things from a legal perspective? They're the ones who were elected by the people To legislate.
3: Yeah, and, and that's a great question because you mentioned, you know, the authority that the executives are coming up with are almost self created. They're basically saying, Well, I have the authority in times of emergency to do X, but as you mentioned, it's no longer a you know a two week emergency or a month emergency. We're going on six, seven, eight months now, likely gonna be over a year. Um, and that's one of the problems. And and few states' legislatures have stepped up. There have been a couple, but few of them have stepped up and say, Wait a minute, you're exceeding your authority here. There's a difference between being smart and How to deal with this, which I think is right, but 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 they're not dealing with it on an even-handed basis, and that's the biggest problem. When you target one specific part of the population and say you can't any longer go worship, but yeah, you can go to a bar, you can go to a restaurant, and you can go to casino, but don't dare go to church on Sunday. I mean, that's just this glaringly problematic.
0: Yeah, and the fact that they are really, you know, imposing a potential of thirty days jail time and a fine of twelve hundred and fifty dollars. I mean, as if these people are criminals because they want to be treated the way these exempt public schools are being treated that's just insane and it's, it, it's scary really that they would do something like that
3: well it is we had a similar case in, in Mississippi where they were it was at the beginning churches were trying to be creative which was fantastic they were doing online church some of them were doing drive-in churches and of course there's drive-in restaurants and there's a drive Sonic down the street one small church is doing a drive-in service everybody's in their cars everybody's separated and the police come during the service and start handing out 500 hundred dollar tickets to all the cars in the parking lot attending church while right down the street everybody's eating in the sonic parking lot everybody's at the home depot parking lot i mean it's just incredible the 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 lens that some of them will go to
0: you're so right about that david Cortman with alliance defending freedom thank you so much david and we'll look forward to hearing how this case resolves really appreciate your being with us
3: All right. Thanks for having me
0: on. Thanks a bunch. We'll be back on Janet Meffer today after this. This Janet Meffer Today archived broadcast is brought to you by Heart for Lebanon. We're trying to provide 100 refugee families with emergency supplies and the gospel during this urgent time of crisis. Your gift of $116 will help two families. Please help today by calling 888-247-5499. That's 888-247-5499. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMeffer.com.
1: This is
3: Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford.
0: Welcome back. Jesus Christ said in Matthew chapter 12, anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Now, that is a terrifying passage if you don't understand it, but consider the context. The Lord was addressing the Pharisees who were attributing his miracles to the power of Satan and that consistent refusal to believe that Jesus as Lord is high rebellion against God Himself and warrants damnation, but. There is good news for every sinner who knows he is a rebel. 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that means God will forgive even the most wicked person on earth if he will turn to Jesus Christ in faith, like Saul of Tarsus. But there are other seemingly unforgivable sinners whom God forgave throughout history. Besides Saul, the question is, do we and should we forgive the worst of sinners too? We're going to talk talk about that today with pastor, teacher and Bible researcher Brent McDonald, executive director of Cottage Cove Urban Ministries in Nashville, and we'll be discussing his book called Forever Unforgivable: Learning to Forgive the Inexcusable for Christ's Sake. Brent, welcome. It's so good to have you with
2: us. It's great to be with you today.
0: This is kind of a tough subject in some ways because God is very gracious and merciful to sinners who will repent. We're not quite as good at it, though, sometimes, are we? Even though we're Christians, we sometimes have a difficult time saying, well, I'm not sure about that guy, Lord, who's repented. He's really, really bad. Why do we do that, do you think?
2: Well, I think we want to be able to have a reason to forgive someone. In other words, um, you know, the, the people that are more forgivable, those are the people it's easier to forgive.
0: Yeah, that's true. That's true. So what do you think makes somebody in our estimation more forgivable than somebody else?
2: Well, the degree of what they've done, um, you know, people have always assume, okay, everybody's a sinner. Yes, you've stolen something. You've, um, you know, you've stolen that cookie or you've, you've told that lie. But, you know, as soon as you start moving up into what we call the big sins like murder, rape, you know, things of that, hostage taking, you go, and eh, maybe not as forgivable.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's right. But we have these examples in scripture. I, I was looking back at you know the account in Acts where Saul comes to know the Lord, where he's on the road to Damascus. And the interesting thing is when the Lord calls Ananias to go and find him and put his hand on him to receive his sight back, Ananias said, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much harm he's done to your saints in Jerusalem. So here's Ananias doing exactly what a lot of us probably would do in the same circumstances. Hey, Saul's a persecutor of Christians, Lord, don't you know that?
2: Exactly. And, you know, the whole idea is at that point, whoa, uh, you know, it's okay if you want to forgive him, but do I have to go?
0: Yeah, right. Well, is that underestimating our own sin on some level? We're, We're good guys. Hitler has hell coming, but me, I'm pretty good when it comes right down to it.
2: Yes, and that that is that we've created a, a kind of a graduate scale of bad. In other words, you know, bad's okay until you get to this point. And then if you cross over that, well, you've crossed the line and you deserve what you get.
0: Yeah. So you talk about some of these people throughout history who are really bad or would fit the category of really, really bad in a lot of estimation of, of Christians. Cornelius and Marinus, you mentioned, for example, when we go all the way back to Rome, Talk about these particular uh, sinners and and why they are important to remember when we think of God's grace and forgiveness.
2: Well, the big thing in Jesus' day, and even in the years following, uh, Rome was an occupying force. And, you know, they came in and committed atrocious crimes against the populace in those areas. And, you know, the whole idea of someone being part of that army and coming to be a savior, uh, you know, coming to, to, to believe in the savior, to believe in Jesus, was just you know, a foreign idea that how could they be part of them and become one of us? Yeah. Right. So it'd kind of be
0: like a modern day Nazi in some ways, maybe not completely, but kind of that would be the analogy maybe from our own day. How could you be a Nazi and then become a Christian?
2: Yes. Yeah, and, and also realizing that it takes time for God to change people's minds. When a person becomes a believer, they don't change everything all at once. And so whether they remain in the long term as part of what they were once part of, that might take time.
0: Yeah, exactly. So Cornelius was a centurion, and we read about him. What what stands out to you about his life and, and how he came to know the Lord?
2: Well, the, the biggest thing with his life is that he would already been influenced by the Jews in the city that he was in. In other words, he already had an awareness of God's law, and God used all of that to bring him to the point of where he was ready to accept Jesus the Savior.
0: Yeah, that's right. Well, this is a good example. And you also talk about, and this is very applicable in our own day and age where we're talking about these things all the time, but you talk about racists and murderers and human traffickers. You mentioned, for example, John Newton and Nathan Bedford Forrest. I mean, it seems right now in America, the very worst sin you could commit is being accused, at least, of being a racist. What of these particular men? We know John Newton, obviously, um, but what, what is important about their lives, do you think, when it comes to the notion of forgiveness
2: well john newton many people have told his story many people have heard what they think is his entire story but it's usually done in a short form where you know he was a horrible racist slave trader comes to know the lord and suddenly he's a wonderful perfect saint that doesn't do any of that yes and that's not the real story the real story is he's like many of us that it took god many years working in his life to see that change
0: yeah and, and why does that matter do you think
2: well, well, it matters because um, so many times we get frustrated, even in the church, with people around us thinking, you know, why aren't they more Christ-like? In, mm-hmm. in other words, we're we're trying to um, speed on, using the big word, sanctification. You yeah, know, we're trying right. to speed their sanctification up.
0: Right, right. So th- there's an element then of patience that once somebody is a Christian, th- you have to give, like a, with a tree, you have to give a tree time to bear fruit in order to see th- what the tree really is.
2: Yes, And then in the case of of Nathan Bedford Forrest, of course, um, I'm here in Nashville and we have a statue of him out on the side of the highway that was once again vandalized last night because Mm. in in the midst of everything that's going on right now, people want to remember him for what he once was rather than what he became.
0: Yeah. Tell us a little bit about his story for those listeners who aren't familiar.
2: Well, he was one of the founders of the Ku Klux Klan. I mean, he was known for a massacre of African-American soldiers during the Civil War. Um, he he was an atrocious individual, and and there's there's no question when you look at his life as a whole. If it just stopped there, you'd go, "This is a horrible individual." But God was at work in him, and um, and he came to know Jesus as his Savior, and it changed him. It changed him radically, and it changed his racist beliefs as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. And then how did that manifest itself, his faith in Jesus Christ? How did that change his life? You know, obviously, he, he, went, he did a very big turnaround, but what difference did Jesus make in his life over the course of the rest of his life?
2: Well, uh, he didn't have too many years left, but in the time that he had left, he was trying to reconcile um, African-Americans and the white populace of his day, which he had been working to divide earlier on. on. Wow.
0: So why don't people think about that when they think about him? Is it that his testimony has largely been lost or just the people who are trying to go after his memory are completely ignorant of what happened to him?
2: It's a a bit of both on that, because you have um, the people that have just never heard the rest of the story. And then there's also a little bit of that view that just says that as soon as you've been tainted by these things before, it doesn't matter what happens afterwards. You, you, You just have to ostracize that person, have nothing to do with them.
0: Well, now, this is an interesting thing because it, we really do, I think, rightly come down on people who act like that. You know, it's not fair to judge somebody when the course of their life ended well. It's not fair to just dwell on their sins. But I would imagine that there are Christians who do this as well, that sometimes we do that as well. We we don't look at how God transforms somebody, but we say, well, well he was just awful. He was terrible. Why aren't we more about you know, the quickness of seeing God's grace in somebody's life?
2: I think in our culture, we even in the church, have become skeptical. And, you know, this idea that we pay lip service to the idea that God changes lives, but we really uh, hesitate to embrace that when we see it in somebody because I've often said that if one of these people if you were just you know transported back in time for a moment and you know Nathan Bedford Forrest walks through the door of your church would you greet him would you Mm. want to be a friend with him
0: wow that would be telling wouldn't it how you would deal with somebody like that coming through the church door and that's why it's so important for us to think about these things we're talking with Brent McDonald his book is called Forever Unforgivable we're going to go to a quick break and we'll come back to the conversation after this you're listening to Janet Meffer today If you could provide God's word to a Bible-less believer elsewhere in the world, would you? Through the ministry of Bible League International, you can send that Bible today. Hebrews 13.3 urges us to remember those in great need, noting that when the body of Christ anywhere is found lacking, we're encouraged to help provide it. These believers live where churches are small and remote, where authorities aren't welcoming of Christianity, and where Bibles are scarce. As Pastor Carlo in Peru says, they need the hope
4: found only in God's Word. Everyone wants to read the Bible, but what happens, there are a few copies here in the area. Many of them will Uh, Be sharing the single Bible
0: For only $5 Believers around the world Will receive Bibles And be discipled In their new faith $35 sends 7 Bibles $100 sends 20 And because of a matching gift Right now Your gift will be doubled Call 800-YES-WORD 800 E S W O 800-YES-WORD Or there's a banner to click At JanetMafford.com Are you in need Of a health care program? You're in luck as a member of Liberty HealthShare, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up throughout the year with memberships starting as early as the following month. And there are no contracts or commitments. Programs start as low as $349 per month. And there's no network, so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance, so your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there. For
3: You're listening to Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's Janet.
0: Welcome back. Great to have you with us and great to have with us Brent McDonald. His book is called Forever Unforgivable, Learning to Forgive the Inexcusable for Christ's Sake. And you, in your book, Brent, do a great job of pointing out some of the worst sinners who came to know the Lord. And this is a good reminder for us that God really is an incredible forgiver. He really is because of what Jesus did for us. And we need to consider how we treat people whom we regard as the worst of sinners, which uh, ironically, that's what Saul called himself, the Apostle Paul called himself. But you know, one of the things when you were saying, how would we act as Christians if Nathan Bedford Forrest, the notorious racist and KKK guy, came through the church door, how would we treat him? What about Jeffrey Dahmer? I'm jumping ahead here because Jeffrey Dahmer is the one everybody seems to talk about. One of the most horrific serial killers. Everybody knows his name and everybody knows what happened. But then there was this story, uh, apparently true, that he became a Christian in prison. Talk about that case in particular, because that one, I think, hits home a lot more for people who, who read the headlines and followed that case and that horrific cannibalism and killing that Jeffrey Dahmer did.
2: Yeah, and and in fact, when you read even what I wrote in summary of his life before he became a believer, um, you know, I I had one person who sent me a one-word comment on that, and he just said "brutal."
0: Yeah, it is, and
2: and and that was his life. And then you know, so many people would look at, well, he got what he deserves. You know, he 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 can go to death row, and we really don't care. And yet, there was somebody that was actually willing to go into the jail and share jesus with him
0: i know that's and i mean that person right there needs some credit because that is a christian who believes nobody is beyond the grace of god yes yeah so what happened now he he professed christ as his savior and lord he was baptized from what we understand was he the real deal
2: From everything that we can know and again by the fruit you'll know them and the longer a person lives afterwards the more you can see God at work in their life and he didn't have the opportunity to live a long life afterwards I mean he was actually murdered in prison
0: right he was but then the problem some people have with Jeffrey Dahmer is so he got away with it that's how a lot of people look at it look at all the terrible things he did he abused animals and he was all the things that he did as you mentioned brutal stuff throughout the course of his life people can read about it in your book but they, th- they say it's not fair that God would forgive him. I mean, what about the families? What about all of his victims? What about all the pain and suffering he caused? Doesn't this necessarily take us back to the cross and what Jesus did to put away our sin? Is that the, the missing element here? Yeah,
2: because it's the understanding that even the so-called smallest of our sins deserves that eternal punishment and that God's graciously willing to forgive us in Christ, and, and because of that, no one's beyond his forgiveness.
0: Yeah. What about the, the angle of he got away with it? Did he really get away with it if Jesus was the one who took on the punishment?
2: No. I mean, in, in that regard, Jesus paid for that sin, and um, and and I mean, he did suffer some consequences. He did end up in prison, you know, things of that sort, and, and some of these people that I write about in the book, they had some consequences or or you know sometimes somebody died for what they did but for the most part these people i mean you have john newton go back to him for a moment yeah here here was a a slave trader that people could say that he got away with it
0: that's true that's true
2: he lived out the rest of his life and never had any consequences for what he did
0: yeah that's interesting but you know isn't that true of all of us I mean, yes. <laughs> if we really see our sin for what it is, I think any one of us could, somebody could say of us, they got away with something. And and really, do we? Because Jesus doesn't wink and nod at our sin. He he died in agonizing death on the cross and rose again on the third day because sin was so serious. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Well, now, some of these Bible figures are interesting. One thing you do in your book is you have a whole chapter on religiously indifferent pleasure seekers, and you talk about some of these women whose names people probably don't know, Paula of Rome and this other Rachel, as you call her. Talk about some of these women that you identify in the book.
2: Well, one of the things I struggled to find when I was trying to illustrate people throughout history was accounts of women. And it wasn't that God hasn't saved as many women or that there wasn't women with atrocious lives. It's just that history has mostly recorded the stories of men. Right. So it, it took me more work to actually find some of this detail. Of course, one coming out of Scriptures, but um, even Paula of Rome, her whole story was one of indifference and decadence and wealth and and just you know being that if you call it the one percent you know at the top and didn't care who she hurt underneath and, and of course owned slaves as well
0: yeah right now now what was her story how did her story end
2: well again her story ends because she comes across an authentic christian she she'd grown up professing to be a christian And and yet it wasn't until she came across an authentic Christian who could share what it meant to be a follower of Christ with her that she began to realize that her life was useless apart from Christ. Mm, mm,
0: Yeah. Yeah. When I think of women in the Bible and and notorious sin, you think of somebody generally like Jezebel, (laughs) whose life did not end so well. But that would have been great had she come to know the Lord. But it didn't work out that way. Yes. Yeah, so we have those examples as well. What about some of the other people in the Bible, the tax collectors, the extortionists? You mentioned Zacchaeus. That's a favorite of a lot of people to go back and see how he responded with repentance when he was confronted by Jesus. But what about the example of Zacchaeus and people like Levi?
2: Well, again, these people were ostracized in the culture because they were um, compromising with the authorities that had invaded their land, the Roman government, you know, they were in it for the money. Everybody knew that. And, you know, they were willing to sell out their own brothers and sisters, if you will, for the sake of a dollar. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that that meant nobody wanted to have anything to do with them. And yet Jesus was known as somebody who spent time with tax collectors.
0: Yeah, he was right. And those were considered the dregs of society at the time.
2: Oh, yeah. You, 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 to call somebody a tax collector was one of the worst things you could call them in those days.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what about when we talk about Saul of Tarsus? I bring him up again because he's, you know, I'm the chief of sinners, he used to say. But domestic terrorists and jihadists, that's the title that you have on the chapter talking about Saul, talking about Simon the Zealot. And yet we have modern day examples of terrorists and jihadists, religious jihadists. Do we really believe that people like that can be saved? Again, we're going back to that same question. Do we avoid thinking that God could have mercy or would have mercy on people like that?
2: Oh, I think we do avoid it. And yet, at the same time, um, you know, people like Osama bin Laden, who's not alive anymore— But would someone have been willing to share the gospel with him if they had that opportunity? Hmm. And and, and the answer should be yes, that the gospel was available to him, too, while he was still alive.
0: Of course, well, and it's difficult because it, you know. In the you think, for example, in prison ministry, one of the things you know, I, I did prison ministry for a time, and one of the things that comes up is the, it's wonderful to do ministry inside prisons because you don't have to convince anybody they're a sinner. I mean, you might you might have some people who protest and say, "I'm innocent, I'm not guilty of what I was convicted of," but generally speaking, those are people who've been through such a hard time that they're willing to listen to the good news. I, I And I think, are we missing, in some sense, a ministry opportunity when we don't go for people who really have been through some terrible sins?
2: Definitely, because part of it for all of us is to come to an awareness that we have sin in our life. And as you say, the people that have been caught up in the middle of this, their lives have consumed by it many times are very close to that and that they can recognize the sin that they need forgiveness from.
0: Yeah, that's right. How how has all of this changed you and the way you do ministry in terms of how you speak to people, how you welcome people, and how you think about what God can do in the power, you know, by his power in the life of somebody that maybe society says is irredeemable?
2: Well the big thing we work with at risk kids and youth here in Nashville and that you know that's my day job and and with that the families have a wide range of backgrounds, the, the parents, the, the the people that are associated with those families, and many of them end up in prison, many of them have been in prison, uh, and it really comes down to that my understanding is that that doesn't matter. The background doesn't matter whatsoever. Every single one of them need to hear about Jesus. Right. Yeah, that's right.
0: Do you find that there is pretty good soil there when they are hearing for the first time maybe the gospel?
2: Oh, Yes. Yeah, and and for sometimes it is the first time. I mean, we we have children that come into our program. We assume here in the, in the Western world that everybody's heard about Jesus, but we've had the, the the child that has come into our program that said, "Who is Jesus? Never heard that name before."
0: Really. Wow. Well, those people do exist. And that's exactly why we need to be witnesses for Jesus Christ, no matter where we are. And you can pick up Forever Unforgivable, Learning to Forgive the Inexcusable. For Christ's sake, it's the new book from Brent McDonald, who's been kind enough to join us. And he is executive director of Cottage Cove Urban Ministries there in Nashville. Brent, so good to have you with us. Thank you so much for being here. Great book and really enjoyed having you with us. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you. God bless you. Thank you for joining us on Janet Mafford today. Always a pleasure to have you here and we will see you next time.